Tie leads off. Glenn Swington drives deep into left field. Look at this one go, everybody. Up to the scoreboard. It's over the scoreboard, bouncing up onto the freeway. I can see it up there where those automobiles are going. Look at that drive. You talk about a tape measure shot. That has got to be the longest home run I have ever seen hit in Crosley Field or hit out of it. No question about it. Look at Jimmy Wynn. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? Greetings, salutations to all. It's your boy, half man, half podcast machine. Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of all these islands, South Kakalaki. Back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. What's up, you freaking seamheads? want to welcome all of you, all over the globe. The word is spreading. Backwards K-Pod is available on all podcast platforms or wherever you listen to your pod. Stitcher, Google, iHeart, Podbean, etc., etc. If you listen to me on Apple or Spotify, please, by all means, hook a good brother up with a rate and a review as you see fit. I ain't skirt. I come through every Tuesday with that baseball smoke. No Patreon, no crowdsourcing. I'm never going to hand my audience an end-of-the-month bill for the content. Like I said, I, I, I see a lot of these other guys do that. And I promise you, I'm not driven to do this for the almighty dollar, folks. I do this because there is literally nothing besides my daughter that I love more in this world than talking baseball. So... In order to keep that content free, all I ask is that you share, subscribe, follow, and download. Leave me content, some of five stars, and, you know, we can do this to my bloody demise till I got nothing left to give. Baseball's given me so much in life that the least I can do for this sport is leave my voice and, you know, like this oral account of the greatest game ever. And I got a lot of positive feedback about the uh, Ron LaFleur show last week. And I want to thank all of you for the kind words. Most of the messages, they, they pretty much encapsulated the same feeling that, wow, I, I, I knew that LaFleur came from prison to play in the majors, but I never realized he had never played in a Little League, high school, or college. And that surely is one of the most fascinating aspects and angles of 
Mr. LaFleur's life as a ball player. To, to be not only a starting center fielder in the major league, but an all-star on top of that within five years of his release from prison without ever playing organized baseball in his life. I mean, that's just mind-blowing. And it's a credit to just his raw, natural athletic ability. Had Ron had any type of coaching, mentoring or disciplining as a youth, I mean, who knows how far LaFleur would have gone in the game. And my producer, my right-hand man, TJ the Head Gordon, the head, you know, he, he made a great point to me the other day when he wondered aloud how many other guys like LaFleur have fallen into the cracks that, that we never had a chance to see. And for whatever reason, whether it's race, coaching, parenting, socioeconomic status, the environment you grew up in, Rala Flores proved that the great talent is often under, uh, you know, overlooked or unrealized. And, and he's right, especially in the black community. And it is one of my major gripes with Major League Baseball these days. I also look at how, you know, two legendary Hall of Fame managers and Billy Martin and Sparky Anderson you know, they saw the floor through totally different lenses of perspective. Billy was more like, you know, this gunslinger-style manager. He had a temper. He had his own personal demons. He was always fighting. And I believe, you know, he saw a player who had ability, and, and his mind deserved a chance. Now, Sparky, on the other hand, with his swift, disciplinarian, my way of the highway style, he didn't like the things that he saw going around in Ron's life. Two great managers, two different perspectives. That fascinates me. But going back to, you know, guys falling through the cracks, I know what happens a lot in the black community. Baseball is always trying some gimmicky horseshit, whether it's pitch clocks, ghost runners, robo-umps, Honorary all-star team roster spots. As if these things are like the real problem problems in baseball. They are not. Right now, less than 10% of baseball is played by black Americans. As black participation in the sport has dwindled, so have the ratings in America. It's not a coincidence. And to me, this should be the number one priority in baseball. There are rival floors all around the country. That the baseball universe is missing out on all the time. So, look, I had fun researching and retelling the Ron LaFleur story. And it seems like you guys enjoyed it, so thank you. I mean, I got a ton of messages on that one. And with Ron LaFleur in the rear mirror, uh, rear view mirror, all aboard. It's time to get this train rolled again with this week's topic. One of the... All-time yesteryear stadium, Cincinnati's legendary Crosley Field. Now, before I dig into Crosley, I need to let you know that the Cincinnati Reds have played at eight ballparks erected in five locations since their professional debut in 1869. Union Grounds was their first home, located about two blocks directly south of the site that would eventually become Crosley Field. The Reds played there from 1867 to 1870. And when the team... 
Well, they kind of unexpectedly folded. They, they weren't making a lot of money. They weren't sure if this baseball thing was going to work. So from 1867 to 1870, the Reds played at Union Grounds. And if you're a native or someone planning a trip to the Queen City, Union Grounds was located just about where the fountain is now in front of the Cincinnati Museum Center at Union Terminal. In 1876, the country's centennial year, the Reds reformed and they built the Avenue Grounds, which sat one mile north of the former Union Grounds. Eventually, the team deemed the stadium impractical because of how far it was from downtown Cincinnati. So, in 1880, they moved south again to the Bank Street grounds. The state was short-lived, and it was located just two blocks north of the future Crossley Field that we're going to speak about today. Now, the Reds would lose the lease to the Bank Street grounds in favor of an upstart Union Association baseball team known as the Cincinnati Unions, or as the Natives affectionately called them, the Onions. So, after losing the lease, the Red Legs moved two blocks south to the corner of Finley and Western to play in League Park in 1884. Uh, And this was basically, it was just an old brick yard. It was an old brick yard. It hadn't been used. They turned it into a baseball field. And the Reds would stay at that location for the next 86 years until 1970, playing in three parks erected on this site right here, the corner of Finley and Western. League Park from 1884 to 1901, Palace of the Fans from 1902 to 1911, and finally... Redland slash Crossley Field from 1912 to 1970. In 1909, the Reds were averaging over 5,500 fans per game at the Palace of the Fans, which had a capacity of 6,000 people. The Reds were clearly outgrowing the stadium, though. The Palace had a grandiose grandstand at the time, but the building was outdated and... MLB baseball attendance had grown almost fourfold in the past decade. Reds president Gary Herman he fired uh, he hired the architectural firm of Hake and Hake to design a new ballpark for the fans of Cincinnati. And during this time, Charles Ebbets is thinking the same thing in Brooklyn, New York as were the McAleers in Boston and Frank Navin in Detroit. And there's optimism in the era as this professional baseball thing, it's beginning to look profitable here. Baseball had come of age with this scrappy country called America, and many of these forward-thinking owners were ready to cash in and show the world its grandeur. And as many of you in the audience know, I, I, I really love these stadium shows, especially these old jewel, bo- jewel box era of baseball yards where they fit these amazing buildings and structures inside of these neighborhoods. And now we have 
uh, Finley, Wrigley, Dodger Stadium, Shy Park, and after today, Crosley Field in my archives. I mean, you should check out any of those if you haven't by going into the archives or whatever your platform is. You can always just stop by diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. Okay, so in keeping with the trend started by Shy Park, uh, Forbes Field, Kaminsky Park, Cincinnati's new ballpark was built entirely with concrete and steel. The newest and most durable of construction materials of the time. Wooden stadiums are now going by the way of the dinosaur as they are susceptible to fire. And they wouldn't be able to safely accommodate the projected attendance of crowds that the owners are anticipating. Harry Hike, Harry Hake designed the ballpark to hold about 20,696 fans. Immediately following the 1911 season, construction crews demolished the old wooden palace of the fan stadium, and they had the site entirely cleared in 15 days. So, think about that. little side note here. If you went to that last game of the season at the palace, within 15 days, not even three weeks later, if you went past that spot, there was no longer a Major League Baseball stadium there, nor evidence of one ever being there. I mean, that's kind of creepy, right? And when I go back and I study these old stadiums and their construction, I'm generally amazed at how efficient and expeditiously these uh, projects went. You know, considering in today's red tape and government world, things move so much slower nowadays, I think. So, five months later, at a cost of $400,000, which is equivalent to $13.2 million in the 2022 economy, Redland Field greeted the 26,336 fans who showed up for opening day. And that date was 11, April 11th, 1912. So, over 26,000 fans come out. They watched their hometown boys meet up the Cubs 10 to 6. And there was an overflow of 6,000 people who stood in the outfield and in foul territory to inaugurate this new ballpark. And Gary Herman, he resisted the suggestion of naming the park after him. He instead named her Redland Field. Nine days later, both Fenway and Navin Field, a.k.a. Brick Stadium, a.k.a. Tiger Stadium. Well, those stadiums opened for business and Ebbets Field would open a year later. So you see in this explosion of these stadiums right now, and it really, it all started with Comiskey. I believe Comiskey was 1902 when it was completed. It may have been 1901, but I think it was 1902. Probably one of the first of the jewel box stadiums. And, you know, people started gravitating towards, first of all, getting rid of wood and going into concrete and steel. The lot which Redland Field was built, it was bounded by York Street on the south. Home Fleet sat 
in the southwest corner with uh, Finley Street running down the first base lot. When the batter was looking at the batter's eye in center field, he was looking towards the northeast. Now, the old Brickyard League Park, the old Brickyard, they called it League Park, it originally had the batter facing northwest instead of northeast, which it caused... You know, a lot of blinding glares the later in the afternoon these games went. And, of course, all games were played in the daytime then. Redlands Field exterior architecture, from my understanding, was really nothing to brag about. It would never be confused with Scheibe from the outside. It was a strictly utilitarian brick building that blended in well with the other brick buildings surrounding it. And, you know, this kind of like warehouse-heavy and industrial neighborhood. She was the sheer representation that beauty sometimes lies on the inside and not on the outside. And there it sat in kind of, you know, this dilapidated neighborhood like the jewel she was. It was an oasis where you could see the bright green grass and the smells of the park would hit you and then... You would think you walked through the gates of Red's Heaven. Now, Matty Schwab, he served as the park's superintendent for 60 years after a 10-year apprenticeship under his father, John Schwab, the Red's prior groundskeeper at League Park. League Park, Palace of the Fans, and Crosley, they would all share the same address. Yes, the grandstands were different, but the dirt and the sod remained the same. Now, Maddie became the park superintendent of the Palace of Fans in 1903 when his father retired. He continued as a head groundskeeper when Crosley was built in 1912, and he remained in charge until he retired in 1963. So, for 60 years, not a blade of grass was touched in Crosley without Maddie's permission and oversight. And upon Maddie's retirement, he returned, you know, he turned his life life's work over to his grandson, Mike Dolan. And Mike Dolan would remain in Maddie's position until the sad day the sod gave way to artificial turf at Riverfront Stadium in 1970. And check this out. Maddie's brother, Leonard, he also apprenticed under the father before becoming the head groundskeeper at Ebbets. And Maddie's son, Maddie Jr., served as a head groundskeeper for the Giants at both Polo Grounds and Candlestick Park. But, here's the thing. Senior would prove to be more than just a groundskeeper. He was an innovative mind who came up with things in baseball that we still use as a template today. For example, he devised uh, the modern post method for holding bases firmly in place in the ground. That was Matty Schwab. He also designed an underground drainage system for Crosley that other stadiums will copy and they still use today. Crosley Field's scoreboard format was also a brainchild of Matty Schwab. He would go on to format both the Giants and Dodgers scoreboards in New York City, as well as the Red Sox, Phillies, A's, and Pirates as well. His 
original format of showing the team's batting lineup. It's still used today at every single ballpark in the majors. Ironically, Matty Schwab would die in 1970, the same year the grass and Crosley would wither and die. So, yeah, Matty Schwab, great piece of baseball trivia right there. In 1919, Crossley Field was exposed to the baseball crime of the century when the Chicago White Sox, in conjunction with shady gamblers, threw the World Series in the Reds' favor. Game one was played at Redland Field where the White Sox ace Eddie Seacott. He went 29-7 that 1919 season with a 1.82 ERA. He plunked Reds' leadoff hitter Maurice Rath. And that was a sign to let the bookies know that the fix was in. So Reds pitcher, Dutch Ruther, he threw a six-hitter. Seacott surrenders five runs in the fourth. And the Red Legs would go on to win game one, nine to one. Game two in Redland Field was another 4-2 upset by the Reds, putting Cincinnati up two games to zero. By the time the series had returned to Redland Field, the Reds had already won four games in this best-of-nine affair. By this time, the White Sox players, they're starting to realize that they've been double-crossed here by the Bunkies, and they're not going to receive their full payout for this fix. So, they begin to ball out. They win Game 6, Game 7, but they lose Game 8, and the series, 5 games to 3. The Reds enjoyed their world championship, but their spirits, you know, were damaged when the, when the swirling rumors of a fix turned out to be true. And a side note here, of course, we'll, we, we will be examining the 1919 Black Sox fix. I believe that's going to happen in a couple months, if I'm not mistaken. And I'll be dropping that here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. So keep an ear out for that. Coming off that 1919 World Championships, the Reds are killing it at the turnstiles. They would uh, perform well during the Roaring Twenties. And the attendance continued to grow as they finished in the top half of the league in attendance six times during that decade. And let's take a look at those original dimensions. I I would be remiss if I didn't mention them. The outfield was huge. It gave athletes plenty of ground to roam, that's for sure. The left field and right field foul poles stood at 360 feet from home plate. And center field, well, that was 420, dude. And during the demo era, it was practically impossible to hit home run unless one of these outfielders fell down, or you know, the ball just had crazy exit velo when it hit the you know when it hit the gap. In fact, now check this out. It took nearly nine years, June 2nd, 1921, for Reds outfielder Pat Duncan to become the first major leaguer to hit a fair ball over a Redland fence for a home run. The ball cleared the fence by five feet, and it hit a cop patrolling out there on York Street. Now, Babe Ruth will come in a month later and show him how it's done. He hit, he hit two, and one of those was for a grand slam, actually. So, uh, Pat Duncan hit the first home run over the fence at Crossley Field, and then Babe Ruth hit number two and number three 
one of those being a Grand Slam, and I could not find out which one it was. But, boy, oh, boy, that West Bomber kid, Babe Ruth, he can't sure hit the piss out of the ball, can he? In 1927, the Red Legs added 5,364 field-level seats in foul territory, which required a slight adjustment in field dimensions. They've shortened those left-field, right-field poles down to 345 feet, and the park's capacity has now jumped to 26,000 and 60 people. Now, that same year, Gary Herman resigns as Reds president and chief owner and CEO C.G. McDermott, he takes over the reins. But Sidney Wells, a prominent attorney, owner of the largest Ford dealership in Cincinnati, behind the scenes, he's moving mountains to bring the Reds to him. And in September of 29, he approaches McDermott about buying the Reds. McDermott, who is the largest minority stockholder, rebuffs that offer. So Wells approaches the other shareholders and offers them four times the market value of their shares. And in less than a week, he had majority interest in the Reds and he promptly put McDermott out to pasture. But Having paid this inflated price, he had to borrow heavily from the Central Trust Company. And that was just to keep the team afloat. Two reasons why Wells' move was disastrous right off the rip. Well, number one, quite honestly, it's much easier to root for a team than it is to actually run one. A lesson he learned real quick. And number two... A month after Wells' hostile takeover here, the stock market crashes, and it sets the historical timeline, of course, with the Great Depression. Wells had experience running the team and exposed him, but it, it didn't really matter much because most of Wells' working, waking moments consisted of you know, trying to keep the team from going broke. His baseball decisions were driven by financial instability, and they they weren't based on baseball wisdom. And unfortunately, this almost sounds very familiar with what's going on in 2022 in Cincinnati. I'm sorry to say. His best attempt at solvency had evaporated. And he began looking for a buyer, but no one was interested by this time. Finally, 1933, the banks foreclosed. They took everything from Cindy Wells. The team, his cash, his other businesses, his home. I think they took his dog. And Central Trust Company, they hired Larry McPhail to run the team for them during the transition period. McPhail's first goal was to find a buyer for the team. And he targeted Pal Crosley, who had earlier declined overtures by Wells to buy the Reds. But McPhail, McPhail had a different pitch to Crosley, and it was more of a warning. Unless he would have bought the team, the city of Cincinnati had a good chance of losing the team to an out-of-town buyer. So Crosley, more out of a, uh, loyalty to a city, bought the team. An entrepreneur who had earned his wealth in radio and the automobile industry. Crosley buys the Reds in 1934. And soon thereafter, Redland Park was officially named Crosley Field.
McPhail's second priority was to increase attendance. And he knew just how to do it. Night baseball. All the other major league owners were set in their little conservative baseball ways and had resisted this idea, but there was no doubt in McPhail's mind that it would work. He had already done it in Columbus, Ohio himself when he ran a farm team there, and he had seen them used at Negro League games. And there was no doubt in Larry's mind this was the future of America and this was the future of baseball. So, trusting his instincts, he spends $50,000 installing more than 600 1,500 watt light bulbs atop eight light towers surrounding Crosley Field. Side note here, $50,000 in 1934 is equivalent to around $1.1 million in the inflated 2022 economy. So, when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt pressed the telegraph key in the White House on the evening of May 24th, 1935, the field lit up like a choir of angels had smiled on the ball yard. And baseball would never be the same again. Crosley Field would draw over 445,000 fans that year, which was more than double from the year before. The Reds drew 130,377 of those fans just in the seven night games they had. And in spite of McHale's vision and the obvious financial success of night baseball, it would take more than a decade for other teams to follow his lead. And the Cubs would hold out for another 50 years before getting lights at Wrigley. And again, we went through all that in the Wrigley Field Show. Go check that out. DonaSnakeJ.Pobby.com The 1938 season was a momentous one in history of the Queen City Cathedral. The Reds shortened the dimension a little, bringing it left field to, to 328 feet. Center field's now 387 feet. And right field now plays at 366 feet. On June 11, 1938, Johnny Vandermeer pitched a no-hitter against the Boston Bees, who would later become the Boston Braves. Another topic I covered in the History of the Braves show. Check that out if you haven't heard it. In the seventh inning, B's manager Casey Stengel, he begins to run smack on Johnny about his no-hitter in progress. And that was actually the moment that Vandermeer first realized he had this no-no going. You got to understand, back then, scoreboards only showed runs and no, you know, they didn't show no, they didn't show hits or errors. And despite Casey's best attempts to get in uh, Johnny's head, the Reds pitcher annihilated the Braves lineup the final two innings of that ball game. And that was the first of two consecutive no-hitters. A record most baseball fans believe will never be broken. Four days later, June 15th, he would pitch that second no-hitter in the first night game in Ebbetsfield history versus the Brooklyn Dodgers. Just a few weeks later, Matty Schaub had Crosley Field looking inspection ready as they hosted the All-Star game on July 6th in a game that saw Johnny Vandermeer start and tossed three shutout innings and in route to an NL 4-1 victory. That offseason, Crosley added more than 3,000 seats by expanding the upper deck down the first and third base lines. The extra seating gave Crosley an expanded capacity of 29,041 fans now. In 1939, the Reds went back to the World Series for the first time since 1919. This time, however... 
The American League team came in to win as the New York Yankees swept the Reds in four games. In Game 4 at Crosley, the Reds led 4-2 going into the ninth, but Cincinnati would commit an error on a game-ending double play in the ninth and three more errors in the tenth to help the Yankees win their fourth title in a row. The World Series returned to Cincinnati in 1940 as Crosley Field hosted the first two games of the series as well as the last two versus the Tigers of Detroit. And even though the Reds would finally take the strap, the the memorable moment of this series was Game 2 when Tigers pitcher Bobo Newsom beat the Reds 7-2 in front of his father who would later die that day of a heart attack. And a motivated Newsom would shut down the Reds in Detroit in Game 5 with an 8-0 shutout. But the Reds would finally beat Newsom in Game 7, 2-1, behind the complete game effort of Paul Derringer, securing their first world title since 1919. On August 29, 1943, Crosley Field saw her largest attendance when 38,017 fans showed out to watch the Red Legs beat the Cards 5-3. Now, World War II and blew up Major League rosters and teams were now looking under every rock they could find for replacement players. The Reds, they found a 15-year-old kid, pitcher out of uh, Hamilton, Ohio, uh, Mr. Joe Nuxel. On June 10th, 1944, Nuxel becomes the youngest player to ever appear in a Major League Baseball game. Just months before, he's pitching against 13 and 14 years year olds, and now he's 15 years old facing Stan Musel and the uh, St. Louis Cardinals. So, as you can imagine, two hits, five walks, five runs, and a wild pitch later, his frightening debut comes to a close with a 67.5 ERA as the Cubs pound the Reds 18 to nothing. And Nuxle didn't return to the Reds for another eight years. And when he did, the old left-hander, he compiled a 135 and 117 record and a 3.90 ERA. All but five of those victories came with Cincinnati. And after his playing days were over, Nuxle, the old left-hander, he worked for Reds television and radio broadcast for 37 years alongside guys like Wade Hoyt, Al Michaels, and Marty Brenneman. On June 22nd, 1947, the impossible almost actually happens at Crosley Field. Reds pitcher Ewell Blackwell, he had no hit the Braves four days earlier, and he had now gone eight and a a third innings without giving up a hit to the Braves once again. In the first game of a doubleheader, with only two outs to go, to tie the improbable record, Eddie Stanky hit a ball in the screws, a hot grounder up the middle, and through the legs of Blackwell, and into center field to destroy the chance at history. Crosley Field would host the 20th All-Star Game in 1953. The National League won 5-1. The AL would score a run in the ninth to avoid the shutout embarrassment. In 1961, the Reds shocked the world Behind the play of Jim O'Toole, Joey Jay, Jim Brosnan, Bill Henry, Vader Pinson, and league MVP Frank Robinson by winning 93 games in the NL pennant, only to again 
Peace the Mighty Yankees and the Eminem Boys, Mano and Maris, on that historic 1961 Yankees team. So, the Bombers slice right through them, taking the series of five. Crosley Field was dressed in her Matty Schwab nines for games three, four, and five. But for the most part, the games weren't even competitive. Uh, the most competitive one was probably game five when Maris hits the uh, series clinching home run in the top of the ninth to capture the title. But there was more to Crosley than just big games. Uh, she was quirky, and her evolution was both charming and lovable. It had a flagpole that stood 82 feet above the ground in left center field. Any ball hitting that pole was still in play unless it bounced out of play and then it was a double. The scoreboard evolved, and it grew in both size and magnificence. It would eventually reach 58 feet in height, and its signature 7-foot London's clock perched on top. And at the peak of her performance, she was both electronic and manual. And it usually took five men to work the board on game day, and Wally Post once shattered through a few panels with a home run blast. It was the only park that had ground rules painted on the walls in certain areas of the park where the play may be interrupted. And that is interesting. If you get a chance, you should Google ground rules on crossing field walls. It's pretty interesting. Both the home and visitor clubhouses were located in separate buildings behind left field. And both teams, their players were exposed to fans when entering or leaving the ball field. For most of the ballpark's history, the Superior Tal and Linden Service Building sat in the backdrop of left field. Most fans, they referred it to it simply as the laundry. But radio announcer Wayne Hoyt called it Burgerland in honor of his uh, main broadcast sponsor, Burger Beer. A huge advertisement sign. It, it crowned the top of that building by uh, Siebler Suits and it had the words... Hit the sign, win a suit. And folks, Wally Post was the best dressed red in town as he hit that sign 11 goddamn times. In 1953, with the rise of the powerful Ted Klazuski, Crossley Field added another 700 feet in front of the right field fence, and that reduced its size to uh, 342 feet from home plate now. But surely, one of the uh, quirkiest facets of Crosley was the 15-degree incline known as the terrace that lay in front of the left field wall. And if you remember from my past shows, both Fenway, Shine Park, they had inclines in their outfield as well. It was called a warning track, but you rarely see outfielders trip over warning traps, which, which was, you know, like a regular occurrence at Crosley. Especially to visiting teams. In fact, the great Babe Ruth embarrassed himself on this field just days before he announced his retirement. York Street was four feet higher than the playing field, and the steep incline eliminated the need for a retaining wall to keep the street from falling into the field. Now, Matty Schwab would enter, you know, he would add like this uh, gentler terrace to both center field and right field to accommodate the standing room only crowd. Henry Hartman was the public address announcer for the Reds in the 30s. Paul Summercamp 
And, you know, just his beautiful, deep, rich voice. He took over in 1951 until his retirement in 1985. Uh, if you would like to hear Summer Camp's voice and why wouldn't you, it's awesome. It's amazing. When this show is over, go to the Big Red Machine show that I did. And in the very beginning of that show, I have audio of his style. Ronnie Dale, he manned the organ for decades. During the seventh inning stretch, he could be heard banging out the Mexican hat dance. <laughs> I love that song. Fenway Park, Tiger Stadium, Crosley Field, they all opened within a week of each other in 1912. Tiger Stadium lasted until 2000. We'll be doing a show on that in the future. Fenway is still going strong here in 2022. By the 1960s, Reds owners decided it was time to put the old girl down. They chose architects Heary and Heary. But that, you know, that's just kind of funny. The, the, first, the first architect firm was Hake and Hake. And now they're turning to Heary and Heary. Well, they get them guys. They, they want them to design a new ballpark on the banks of the Ohio River, a multi-purpose donut-shaped stadium to be called Riverfront Stadium. And I said this during the shot, Parcel. It's amazing that the Phils go from, you know, a baseball cathedral like Shop, or by that time, Connie Mack Stadium. They go from that to the vet, and it's the same thing here with the Reds. They're going from Crossley Field to Riverfront. And it just blows me away that these multi-purpose tulip bowls were ever the rage in baseball. I mean, they always looked horrible to me. I don't know. Maybe it's because, you know, I watched my team in an open-air stadium, Memorial Stadium. I, I thought those stadiums were ugly. And their artificial turf. The Reds played their last game at Crossley on June 24, 1970 against the San Francisco Giants. With his team down in the 8th, 4-3, to three, Hall of Famer Johnny Bench went downtown with a game-time blast. And then the big bopper, Lee May, Went back-to-back with what would turn out to be the game-winning RBI. Walk it off, Big Bopper. The Reds won the first game of Crossley, and they won the last game of Crossley. And in between, they won and lost a whole bunch of games. But they created a scrapbook of memories for Red Lake Nation forever. After retirement, the city of Cincinnati used Crossley... Field as an impound lot for two years before demolishing her in 1972. And folks, I think that's where I'm going to end it. I hope you enjoyed this week's show. There's a, you know, there's a little bit of stuff you can check out if you're interested in learning more about Crossley Field. I highly recommend a book I got from Amazon called Cincinnati's Crossley Field. A Gem in the Queen City. It's edited by Gregory Wolf. I got it for 19 bucks, and it, it was invaluable to my research. They have some real cool video on YouTube. A lot of old games uh, without play-by-play, although there is a great video of Vince Scully calling a Pete Rose home run at Crosley. So maybe, you know, you want to go check that out. As for checking out, and before I do, check out my uh, YouTube and Facebook pages that fly under the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network banner. Visit the show's Twitter uh, Twitter page at 
back underscore K underscore podcast. Or like I said, also, just, you know, check out the Expanding Vault of Shows wherever you listen to your pods or at my website, at my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. As for next week, well, it's All-Star Tuesday. So, of course, the snake is going to make sure you got that history of the All-Star game right when you wake up on Tuesday morning. So you'll be able to check that out before the game. And look, just when you think you have all the answers, I change the questions. That's called setting the table. So, history of the All-Star next Tuesday, but hey, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Parents, if you see your kid looking bored AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. <laughs>